0: Hi, my friends at futureprimitive.org. I'm here with Dr. Robert Foreman. He has a PhD and he has practiced spirituality for most of his life. He has been meditating for 40 years and he has had amazing breakthroughs. In spite of these breakthroughs, he has written a book called Enlightenment Ain't What It's Cracked Up To Be, A Journey of Discovery, Snow, and Jazz in the Soul. I have read this book, and I find it absolutely delightful, as well as profound and a very interesting explanation of what The spiritual journey has been for Dr. Robert Foreman. Robert, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself in any way that you'd like to, and then speak to us about how enlightenment ain't what it what it's cracked up to be was incubated and written.
1: Um, I want our listeners to know that this is the second time we've done this conversation because the first time the technology didn't seem to work for us very well. So I do feel like I'm dealing with a friend here, and I hope that our listeners both can hear that and also forgive us for laughing too much if that happens. So That's the first piece. Uh, the second piece is in terms of introducing myself. That's always kind of embarrassing to do, but I think what I want our listeners to know is that um, yeah i've been meditating for 40 some years and and um, i've had my share of rather unusual experiences um, but i've i've taken this all very seriously and i've i got a phd in comparative religious experience i've been writing books this is not my first book but i've been writing academic books about the nature of spiritual life and the nature of spiritual experience so that as we talk about what enlightenment isn't isn't. I just I want our listeners to know that this is something I've been seriously thinking about for quite some time, for my whole life, for my whole adult life. So that's that's kind of the way I'd like to have them know that. Um, in terms of the way this book happened, uh, that's an interesting story because, as I say, you know, as a professor of comparative religions and as somebody that got a PhD in this stuff. I've been reading books and articles about spiritual experience for my whole adult life. And I've probably read, I don't know, 2,000 books on this stuff. I mean, it's, you know, and at some point I got so that I could no longer read them because there was a sense that I had that I was reading a certain kind of fiction. Not that people are lying, but that there's a lot of self-talk in the spiritual world, a lot of, oh, I don't know, hype that goes on in the spiritual world of, oh, it's going to be so wonderful, oh, it's going to be so terrific. And and I wanted to tell the story, both of my own life, but also of what I've come to understand about the spiritual life. And I wanted to tell it in a way that seemed deeply true to me. Um, I've written, as I say, I've written books before, and I said to myself as I was beginning this particular book, I said, look, I don't know how to write a bestseller. I've written academic books. I don't know how to write a bestseller. Mm -hmm. So I going to write a book for an audience of one i'm going to write a book that seems actually true to me Mm -hmm. this audience of one and so what i have here is a, a tale of an individual's experience and an individual's spiritual life but also an exploration of what the spiritual life is all about in a way that seems like i'm really telling it without any of the bs that often goes One thing that surprised me and i and i have to say that you know in our last conversation you and i we talked a little about this but one thing that surprised me is people are seeing their own lives in this people are seeing their own struggles and their own experiences and that's that says to me if you really tell the truth about this stuff people know it and people can sense that their own lives are being reflected i think the the human life i think the human spiritual path is often a path that we all in some sense share so my attempt is and i think I've been reasonably successful. My attempt is to tell the real truth about this stuff.
0: I wanted to ask you this question the last time we spoke. Can you say what you mean by the word enlightenment and at the same time compare it in a certain way to what other people have meant about the word enlightenment?
1: That's, that's, a, that's a great question. That's a, good, that's a good way to think about this. I think a lot of people uh, have a very um, idealized picture of enlightenment, and we get it where we got it from our gurus, mm-hmm. from lots of texts. I think that there's a kind of fantasy about what enlightenment is. So let me talk about that, yeah. and then I'll talk about what I've come to understand. it. I think the fantasy is that your life is going to get, in some sense, perfect that you're going to be ego-free, that you won't have any wishes of your own so much, that you will be uh, happy in everything you do. And I think that, you know, I think that that's certainly what I felt in the beginning of all this. And as as I think about it, I didn't make that up. I mean, my guru, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, you know, he said things like the following. He said, enlightenment will put an end to all suffering. Enlightenment will fill the heart with happiness and bring perfect tranquility to the mind. And he says, a soul evolved to this cosmic state will be eternally contented. This is pretty high stuff. This is pretty fancy. You know, we're, you're going to feel pretty good. <laughs> it's like, right. if you're eternally contented, that's pretty cool. And I think that in a certain kind of deep metaphysical way, that's accurate. But what I've come to understand is, in, in the shift that Hinduism calls Moksha, uh-huh. or Buddhism calls Nirvana, or sometimes Pratichyam or shunyata emptiness. Mm -hmm. I think that what happens is there really is a shift that happens. And the shift is from being caught up in your experience. And, And when I look at the door in front of me in the past, I would have been, there would have been me and the door, and they would have been all kind of tangled up together in some way. And I think what happens in enlightenment is that there's a shift so that you become aware of your own consciousness, your own sense of awareness at the same time that you look over at the door so that the sense is, I'm this consciousness, I'm this sense of awareness, and I'm looking at a door. Mm -hmm. Or another way to put it is that you become aware that you are a kind of spacious, silent backdrop to everything you encounter. So that it used to be that when I saw what I looked at in the world, it was I, I didn't have a clear sense for who I am or what I am. Whereas after the shift into enlightenment, you become aware that you are a vast silence. And it's behind everything you look at. It's behind everything you feel. There's this sense of spacious openness that seems to come with the shift into moksha. And that sense of spacious openness is really of value. But it's not the, the fantasized picture of enlightenment that I used to carry. It's not that I became or one becomes without an ego. It's not that one becomes without any desires of one's own. Rather, it's that you now hold your desires and hold your ego in the context of this sense of open, silent awareness. And that's where the shift happens. It's a subtler shift than I was expecting. It's a
2: subtler, quieter shift Mm -hmm. than
1: I think most people kind of have a sense for. Mm -hmm. Does this help?
0: Yeah, I was thinking about um, what uh, Suzuki Roshi said. He said Mm -hmm. when his wife died, his uh, students approached him and said... uh, well, well, why are you crying? Since you're not supposed to have attachment, and he said, "Well, I'm uh, crying, but my tears have no roots." So, would you would you be able to relate it to that?
2: Yeah,
1: I I think so. Um, it, well, the way I would hear that at this point, yes, is I would hear him saying that he he is, as it were underneath his experience. And what is underneath his experience is this vast and open silence. But he also recognizes that here's this life that he's lived, and here's here's his wife that he's been with, and that the sense is that the mourning that he's in, the tears that he's shedding, don't quite get to that sense of silence. Not in a bad way, but mm-hmm. in a good way. Mm-hmm. He holds a sense of open equanimity in the middle of all of his his behavior and his feelings, so that the, the sense of equanimity is unshaken by this whatever's going on. I, I had a similar sort of experience when my dad died a few years ago, mm-hmm. and and the, the thing that was very surprising to me was I felt very much in mourning. I was really well, in mourning for my dad, whom I loved, And yet I also was saying or or sensing in myself, ah, this is what mourning is.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I was experiencing mourning mm-hmm. as if it were somehow separate from or not quite in, trammeled by the sense of, I, I was not quite trammeled by the mourning I was in. I was simply in mourning, but it was not quite the same as the silent awareness that was aware of the morning. And in that sense, you have a certain kind of dignity in the middle of your own feeling system. Another phrase for that that I like is mm-hmm. that it's, when you first start out, it's like you're in a sailboat, and when the wind comes, it sort of pushes the sailboat this way and that way and this way and that way. But then as you sort of establish yourself in this sense of silence, it's as if the sailboat has a deeper keel. And so that you still feel the wind, you still feel the road rocking back and forth, but it doesn't quite get to the balance anymore. It's as if you you retain a sense of balance within the middle of it. And yet, and this is the piece I want to stress, it is not a kind of personality transplant. Your personality stays the same. You stay the same guy. You know, I started out my spiritual path being a slightly overweight, neurotic, balding Jewish guy. Mm-hmm. And and I ended up the spiritual path being a slightly overweight, balding Jewish guy with silence behind it. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't change who you are.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's, the, who you are is still the same. Mm-hmm. But rather, it's, it's now that you, you hold who you are in the context of this sense of silent openness. And that's better.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Well, I want to ask you something, Through psychotherapy, one might develop this kind of witness, be less um, tormented by the fact that I'm tormented. And so I'd like to ask you, what's the difference that you sense between becoming healthier through psychotherapy and living the... With that silence or in the mystical life?
1: Uh, That's beautiful, and that's something I've thought a lot about. So thank you for asking that. That's really core to the way I think about things. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me put it this way I struggled after the experience, this, this experience of silence kind of got established in my life. I probably struggled for eight, ten years psychologically until finally I kind of gave up and I said look whatever this experience is inside I'm still a mess and I have I really have to figure this out so I, I did go to psychotherapy and as as we might have said in the beginning uh, you know I was in psychotherapy for a long time I was really quite a mess and um, I, I think that what I began to sense is is that um, there was a kind of parallelism there let me see if I can explain that um, the first problem that I had to face was I had, I was having panic attacks about giving papers to professors. And so I really had to look into what I was panicking about, what, what I was really so scared about. And ultimately I came up with the thought that it was about, I was afraid of my father's judgment, not my professors, but my father's judgment.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: the day I had that thought, Oh, it's really not about professor. so and So it's about my dad. I began to experience the pain, but uh, was able to confront the feelings about my dad and confront the feelings about my own life with the same sense of effortlessness that that, the, the sense of silence brought with it. In other words, I was carrying a sense of effortless openness, and with reference to the issues around my dad, I stumbled into the, experience, into the ability to hold the fear I had about my father, the fears I had about success and failure, with the same sense of effortless openness that the silence brought. So I began to think, and I still mm-hmm. think, that silence offers a kind of invitation to us. And I think anybody that's been on the spiritual path a while recognizes this, that your spiritual path invites you to a certain level of effortless openness. And so that you want to live your whole life in, in, in the same rhythm, in the same sense of that effortlessness as you, you live it inside, deep down inside with your spiritual life. So that silence invites you to a sense of openness. But I do not think that it's exactly the same sense of witness. I want to reserve the word, in, I want to reserve the shift that happens into a sense of a kind of dynamic openness. I want to reserve the, the word enlightenment for that shift. I think that's what the texts are describing that there really is a shift that takes place. It's a very deep shift. It's a very important shift. But it's not a psychological shift. It's Mm -hmm. rather a kind of um, existential or metaphysical shift. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the shifts that take place in enlightenment, in, in, in psychological work, are quite parallel to that. And you become increasingly open and increasingly effortless. But I don't think the witness is quite the same thing. I think you just gain a certain level of perspective on your own issues. So I think what happens is that there's... There's a distinctive parallel between those two things, but I don't think they're quite the same. I think that what happens in psychological work is much more connected with the world. We might want to say that psychological work leads to a, 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 a level of the freedom of soul, which is much more intimate in, in our daily life, whereas the the spiritual work leads to a freedom of spirit. And I think those two have patterns that are the same, but I don't think they're exactly the same. And and it's something I've really had to come to terms with over the years.
0: Very interesting. I'd like to read a um, a phrase here in your book, enlightenment isn't what it's cracked up to be, or ain't what it's cracked up to be. And I'd like you to um, speak about it, because I think it's important. If silence is part of our everyday lives... We have to somehow learn to work from within it. Our work is too important. Our work days too many to do anything else. There is a calling for each of us, I think, to speak what is deepest in our way. It nudges and pushes and calls until we answer, and then it nudges some more. And I want to speak here about the fact that uh, it feels to me like we are at a turning point in our humanity. And so I value that call, and I'd like you to speak to the people who need to hear that call in a compassionate way.
2: Uh, it's,
1: It's lovely. Thank you for reminding me I said that. That was actually nice. I would say this when i started the path i would read a book like the gita and the bhagavad-gita and the gita says something to the effect of you know each of us has our own calling each of us has our own dharma is their word and 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 i i expected that that sense of calling or that sense of the next step would come to me rather like a hammer on my head like bonk, you're supposed to now be a businessman, or bonk, you're supposed to be a scholar. Mm -hmm. And I think that that naive view of what this kind of path produces, I think was leading, certainly led me astray, and I think it was leading all of us astray, that what I've discovered over the years is that there is a sense of calling, but it doesn't come loud, and it doesn't come, in a way that we can't resist. Rather, it takes a kind of quieting down of the soul and a quieting into being able to hear what our next steps are. And if we are very preoccupied, if we're quite busy, or if we're very preoccupied with our worries or our psychological issues, it's virtually impossible to hear this calling. But if you're able to quiet down enough so that you're not quite so obsessed with, dizziness, or quite so obsessed with some psychological issue, then you start to hear a sense of a kind of nudge, or a kind of whisper, and the whisper says, go here, don't go there, or be more effortless here, be able to respond to what the world is inviting you to do, and to to be able to listen in, in a way that is closer to what is more authentic and more genuine to you. Um, I, I've had I've had several experiences like this, but I want to tell you one. Yes. The only one that I've had in which it was not a whisper but a shout. Okay. And, and this is about three or four years ago, and I was I was feeling the need for money, and I was and I and I got trained to do a certain kind of energy business, that, you know, to help people get their houses more well insulated. And I said to a very dear friend of mine, a guy named Tom Duffy. Um, you know that I was thinking I was going to start this business, and Tom yelled at me. He said, "You shouldn't be doing business. You're you're a Brahmin. You're you're you know you respond to the world in a very really thoughtful way. It's not like a businessman. It's be like you. You know, don't be like a businessman." Mm-hmm. And it was so wise. Now that's the only time in my life that I got yelled at by this calling. Generally, it comes. No, no, no. Just listen up here. You know, Generally it comes as a whisper, not as a shout. But I think we all have that sense of where we are and aren't, or have a sense of what our next big step is. And it's a question of listening in for that next step. And I think that the demand that we have in our society for more, 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 more money, more things, more bigger cars, I think all of that in our society is serving us well excuse me, serving us poorly, Mm -hmm. and that what it's time for us to do is to start listening to really what the next calling is, not so much, you know, as individuals, but to start to listen as a community, as a community of human beings for what really needs to happen here and what's what's our next big step here. So, yeah, I, I think this is deeply important, and I think our society is long overdue for this kind of reflective process.
0: So this leads me to ask you, uh, do you think and feel that listening to this call could have serious implications in our political and social system? Oh, God, yes, such a Absolutely, yeah. I mean,
1: if, now, here, uh, to some extent, I need to own up to the fact that I tend to think about things. Uh, in a fairly liberal or progressive way as opposed to a conservative way, but I think conservatives have a real point. But, so let me see if I can get to that. Um, I think that the real problem that our society faces is that we assume that more, more, more is going to satisfy the ego, satisfy us as individuals. And I think that's the mistake. That the only way to be satisfied is to have more than my neighbor, to have more money, et cetera, and to have, you know, to, to, to have a life that's, you know, what, what we used to say was better than my parents. Mm-hmm. And I
2: think that if we are able to listen in to what's really appropriate or what
1: really is being called for from us, then I think that our society would be much better off recognizing that it's not the amount of money that we have. Not the amount of things that we own, but rather the amount of fulfillment that we find in our hearts and in our lives that really makes a society a healthy one. And if that's where society is putting its value, which would be much more a question of listening in to what is really best, what is really right, if our society would be more well-oriented around that, I think our society would be unbelievably better off. I think, you know, if you, if you look at where the real conflicts are, the conflicts are, shall I pay more taxes to support that other guy? Well, that's a silly and very petty kind of concern. Um, you know, shall I reduce the size of my car so I don't spew out more crap into the atmosphere? You know, that, again, is a very petty concern. Do I drive a big car or a small one is a very petty concern. Can I see beyond my own needs and see what's good for the society, or what's good for my fellow man as a whole? Those concerns are deeply meaningful and deeply important. And I think that, that, that the society that can really start to listen in there would be better off. Now, I want to say that, that my conservative friends, my Republican friends in the United States, I think they have a heck of a point. Change that comes too fast. Now, here I'm thinking like Edmund Burke, but change that comes too fast is dangerous. I think we don't want to see things move too, too fast along. However, I, I think that, that that is a very wise caution. But I don't think it has the final word. I think that we really do need to start thinking about our lives in a broader and more life-affirming way as opposed to just who has the most money or who gets to keep the most money. Mm -hmm. So I I think, yes, being able to listen into the larger callings of a society are enormously
0: important. Thank you for asking that one. Okay. So here's what came up for me to ask you now. Mm. It's hard to listen to that voice when our survival, Maslow, things are not met, like being cold or being whatever, too poor to feed our children or whatever. Yep. And yet, the uh, Bushmen of the Kalahari, the, um, the Native American societies seem to have a deeper connection at times with the greater the greater whatever so how do you reconcile these two things
1: first of all and here i'm going to i'm going to ask you to i'm going to challenge just one little thing i think it's easy to idealize primitive society I think it's easy to assume that those people over there are, are better off than we are, or are, are deeper thinking than we are, are, deeper responding than we are. I simply don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say the Native American people that I've met, who admittedly have tended to be urban, in other words, living in cities, um, I, I would not say these people are, are noticeably more connected, more profound than than other people that I know. I would say
2: these are people with a particular Set of backgrounds and interests. So I simply don't know if it's the case.
1: And I'm not saying it's not the case, but I don't know if it is the case that, that you know, our, our friends from the Kalahari or our friends from Native American religious systems are, in fact, that different than we are. I think it's easy to kind of idealize that. So that's the first thing. But I, I think that it is possible in any society to find depth and to find deeper meaning. I, I think... It, Everything that I've read and everything that I've seen suggests to me that if you're neither extremely rich or extremely poor, it becomes easier to be concerned about matters of deeper life, matters of spirit, as it were. I think that the people that I know that are very rich and the people that I know that are very poor tend to be more preoccupied with other concerns in a way that tends to be not quite as life-affirming, not quite as healthy. But most of the people in the Western developed nations that I know and and I know of are not in that boat. Most of the people are someplace in the broad middle and I think have an enormous possibility to be thinking about what makes a life really worth living, what makes a life feel really more authentic and well-connected. So I think that's that's the challenge for us, all of us. Um, So I think it's an interesting question as to whether or not... um, Poverty disallows this. All I can say is that the studies that I've seen and and the people that I've met would suggest to me that either being extremely rich or extremely poor makes it a little less easy to be concerned about what is really calling to us.
0: Okay. Does making a connection to the silence, opening up to the vastness of the silence, does that... Has that made you more human in the sense of having more a self-compassion?
1: A self-compassion or just compassion in general or both?
0: Self-compassion and compassion in general.
1: I would say this, and that's, that's a wonderful question. You're just, this, is, this is a great conversation. Good. Um, I would say this. I was expecting silence to make me a compassionate being I was expecting silence to make me ego free and it did not happen however I think that it makes it just a little easier and just a little more likely that I can be more compassionate and and be more self compassionate I think what what I see in my own life and what I see in other people that have, that also have lived a very committed spiritual life is that it becomes just that much easier, just a little easier to be able to look at one's own life and look at the life of another person and be able to hold the positive and negative in one large glance so that you can have a sense that this is where things this is where I've done well and this is where I've done poorly and be able to hold both of those things at once. Or this is where my life has been easy and this is where my life has been hard and be able to hold those two things at once. So that I think it makes it just a little easier. One, one image that I have in the book that I think kind of catches it yes. is imagine that um, you're, in a, you're in a snowstorm or, or near a glacier, and and um, you have just a little candle. You know those little uh, candle holders that stop the wind from going down those little those little glass holders. Yeah. Um, that imagine you have a candle and one of those little glass holders, so that the wind doesn't get to it. So you have a steady flame, and you have a steady flame with a, a an enormous snowstorm that's raging, or blizzard, or or that you have a glacier nearby. It's like the candle doesn't melt the glacier. The candle doesn't stop the snowstorm. But it provides just a little more warmth to a life. Just a little more warmth. It makes it just a little easier to find your way through what is frozen in you. To find your way through where the blizzard is raging. And I think that that's what I see in my own life. That having silence has made it just a little easier for me to be able to address where I'm not compassionate with myself or with another person. I still struggle there, Joanna, but I must say I still struggle Mm. in terms of, you know, some of the issues that I have to deal with. I've been thinking about one just this morning of issues that, you know, I really still get all kind of tangled up in myself and tangled up in my own fears and whatnot. But I think carrying silence makes it that much, it's as if you're being held or cradled by this sense that what you have deep down inside is okay.
2: Mm.
1: What you have deep down inside is welcoming. Mm. And it's it's not the end of the world. It doesn't make all your troubles go away, but it makes it just a little easier to be compassionate with yourself and compassionate with another human being. And in that sense, I think carrying silence in the spiritual path is of enormous value, Mm -hmm. but it's not you know, it's not the kind of panacea that I was thinking it would be. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I have a word for it, and uh, its tenderness, it has softened me.
1: It has... Yeah, that, that starts to get to where I also experience this, and I think a lot of our listeners also would recognize that the silence that they carry, to the extent that they carry it, yes, it has a kind of a sweetness to it, a tenderness to it. And it doesn't make everything taste great and it doesn't make all of life easy, but it makes it just a little sweeter, just a little more tender to be alive. I think it makes it just a little easier to love
0: and to love oneself as well. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read another little passage from your book, which...
1: It's weird to be quoted to yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah. but uh, it's well worth it with this book i i call it enlightenment plus the plus happens in our everyday life jazz in the soul jazz in the soul has something to do with fluidity it's been so effortless that we can jam effortlessly from painful to serious to laughter to fear to silence, and then back again. There are no walls in such a life, no inner resistances. Soul jazz means you can sink into your own fear and joy and sexiness and vastness and then pop back out again, all in the key of life. I know no one who lives enlightenment plus in every corner of their lives. It is An asymptote, but it's the right asymptote. I don't know what asymptote means, by the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, asymptote. Imagine you have a circle, and you have a line coming up to the circle, and the line gets closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to the circle, but never quite makes it to the edge. Yes. But that distance between the line and the circle is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay. That's an asymptote. All right. So what I'm saying there is that, you know, you can live... An increasingly free life, and you get increasingly free and increasingly free, but you never quite get 100% freedom. You, know, you never quite get there 100%. And it's in and that sense an asymptote. But let's back up, because first of all, thank you for reading that passage. It's like, no, yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> I like <yeah>. that passage. <laughs> yeah. it's um, good. I, the, the Forge Institute, uh, uh, an organization that I founded and, and still have the privilege to run. Um, has developed a program called Soul Jazz. I want to talk about that because that's where the phrase jazz and the soul comes yes. from. Yes. The idea is this that, and, and we talked about this before, that if you want to be free in your own life, in your everyday life, the trick is to be able to be completely honest with yourself about what you're really feeling, about what's really going on. And if you have the right friends to be able to be honest with your friends about what's really happening in your life and what's going on, I think that what I discovered in psychotherapy was every time I, I had a breakthrough in psychotherapy, it had to do with telling the real truth.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: first one was, you know, that I wasn't worried about the professors, I was worried about my dad. The second one was I had to be able to remember, and ultimately remembering this was very painful, but it was very important and very valuable. I had to remember the abuse that I'd gone through when I was 10 to 14 or so um, with my mom. And that was quite painful to think about. But ultimately, I had to be able to say to myself, yeah, this is what happened. And be able to say it without any leftover difficult emotion. So, you know, I can tell the story now. It's not not difficult anymore. It's like Mm -hmm. serious, but it's not difficult. Um, Being able to tell the real truth is, I think, where you get free. Uh, being able to speak what is really so for you is so freeing. It makes you, as it were, wide open. So imagine that you, you're, you're telling a friend something that you've never told them before, never told anybody before. It might be a therapist, it might be a friend, it might be somebody else, it might be a lover. And you finally tell them this thing you've been keeping from yourself a long time. Just, how, how do you feel after you've told such a story? I'm asking you this.
0: Oh, Wonderful.
1: Um, can you describe that feeling? That's wonderful.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. Just everything about me has become simpler and more connected to yes. the other.
1: That's exactly what I feel. Right. You're both connected with yourself now, and you're very connected with the person that you've shared this mm-hmm. with. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what we what we're learning is that in order to that it's possible to learn how to do that effectively to learn how to do it more consistently and this program that we've developed called soul jazz um, helps people do exactly that and it's a wonderful program and the result of it is um that you become able to be freer both with yourself and with others you become more open it's as if you were holding the truth inside yourself as if you have a little box in there you can't quite open. And then you finally open the box and you realize, oh, I can breathe easier now. I'm more open. I, you know, you're not holding anything. You're not holding quite as much back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in that sense, it's it's you become freer. You become more improvisational. So that the more you do that, the more you are able to speak the real truth to yourself, the less holds you down the less holds you back, and the more you can play in any circumstances. So that, so that to, to go through mourning, and there's a certain kind of openness to mourning.
2: Mm-hmm. There, to
1: go through something very serious when my daughter was sick, to go through her sickness was very, very hard, and yet I was open to just like, hey, this is what it is. To mm-hmm. go through this
2: mm-hmm. with
1: her is very difficult, yet I'm completely open to it. Or to go through, you know, a marriage or a divorce, all of this you can be more open you can be freer in the face of your own life and in the face of your own problems so that to do that with other people is amazing to do it with you for example as we talk and we talk and we talk on this phone call on the one mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you know there's a sense of just freedom we can almost go anywhere here yeah and that's kind of it's like improvisation it's like playing jazz together so that you can do that, if you have people you trust, and if you if you know how to do this, you can live your life at that level of open, improvisational, playful, loving kind of quality. And for me, that's what I mean by jazz of the soul. That I can go anywhere, and and if if life hands me something that's difficult, I'll be there. If life hands me something that's fun, I'll be there. If so, you know, it, I don't really you know, it's like it's really okay to be engaged with your life and not resistant to any of it. And that's what I mean by jazz in the soul. And that's all I want to do. I want to play with people. I want to play with you. I want to play with others so that I can just live a life in which I am that free. And I want to be with people who are that free. So that's what I mean by jazz in the soul, yeah.
0: Okay, so I want to bring up the question of shame in the sense that Uh, Most of us in um, this Western society have been taught as children that we're not enough. Can silence or awareness coexist with toxic shame and uh, in, um, in soul jazz, in other words, in connecting with another person that is not judging you and is not ashamed of you, can the silence emerge and one not feel ashamed of oneself?
2: Uh, well,
1: uh, let me say a couple of things here. Yeah. Um, first of all, you've hit, you've hit one that for me is not resolved. I have done an enormous amount of work on exactly this question. I've certainly made a lot of progress on it, but I have not resolved it. In other words, I still struggle with this one So.
0: Bravo, bravo for saying that,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it's hard not to say it when it's true, but yeah, yeah I know what you mean. Me and too, I
2: think, yeah. 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 But I can say this, that, that I deal with, I, I struggle with this one. Since 1972, when the silence sort of
1: dawned itself in my life, I have maintained silence in the face of my own anxieties and in the face of my own shame. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think in, that, in the kind of deep existential way I, I understand enlightenment to be, um, yes, you can certainly maintain silence. Silence doesn't mean that your personality is that different. If you struggle someplace, you'll continue to struggle until you resolve it. I think the deeper question is, uh, is it possible for us to resolve this and, and develop a sense of openness even in the face of our own shame? And that's that's not a question of just enlightenment. That's a question of life. Yeah. Yeah. find my Is a lifelong commitment that you recognize where you're struggling and you keep at it for me because i i think about this in terms of truth telling for me the challenge is can i remain dedicated to the truth long enough and consistently enough that when i run into this problem again as i have this morning
2: yes
1: that i can maintain the, the determination to keep asking well what's really going on here what really is this about and what really am I doing to cause myself such pain? I think one thing that I I see in many people on the spiritual path is, is wanting to uh, think positively and make it all go away. I I personally think that's the wrong approach. I think that positive thinking, it it only makes it go away temporarily. And then you find yourself back in the soup. I think the only way to make this stuff really get resolved is that you resolve it, that you look at it and you say, What's really going on? Can I resolve this? And then you say to yourself, okay, I will keep at this until I figure out or until I'm able to say this is really what's bugging me. This is really what's what's driving this. And there's a kind of, remember I used the word asymptote before? Mm -hmm. There's a kind of keeping at it. You keep at it, and you keep at it, and you keep at it, and you find yourself getting increasingly resolved. Whether we can get fully resolved. I know we can't get fully resolved in all of our issues, but can we get fully resolved in something like this? I think so I'd like to think
0: so yeah Now, yeah. well we'll keep checking in with each other
1: uh-huh.
0: yeah you said to me um in a in an email I think when we were talking about doing this you um you said read my book because I think that I'm saying something new and um, this something new relates to what uh, to me relates to what you just said. Um, this this correlation between silence and uh, awareness, and the simplicity of just being what we are uh, in our personality and our conditioning, and so on. So back to these texts these teachers from the East all the things that uh, we wrote we read in the 60s and 70s about bliss about this total freedom from what pains us why do you think these people described their enlightenment in that way and for us it might be different um, that, that's a question I thought about a lot so uh, it, it's
2: very interesting to think about this. So I've got a couple of thoughts on this.
1: Uh, first, I think that the concerns of people in the East, the deep concerns, are different than those of us in the West. I think if you read the texts from India and from Tibet and China, mm-hmm. the real problem they were facing, at least the way I, I've come to understand it, is the problem of, of samsara or, or rebirth. So that it's, it's, it's you know, you, you're born, and then you live, and then you die, and then you get born, and you live, and you die, and you're born, and you live, and you die. There's a movie called
2: um, uh, Groundhog Day, yeah. in which the, the star Bill Murray
1: goes through a kind of I'm sorry, He lives, and then he dies, and lives, and dies. And every day he has to go through it again. And ultimately, the concern that you have, if that's your experience, is the concern is, how do you stop being on that mouse wheel? it's not a question of do you feel good but really how do you get off the mouse wheel and the and the the answer that i see hinduism and buddhism supplying is you come to recognize how that you're not quite the body you're not quite the personality that you're this other this silence thing so there's a kind of metaphysical shift that they were looking for as a way to get off the mouse wheel way to get off of the samsaric cycle well when when they came to the west when Marshy came to the West, mm-hmm. what we heard was, you know, see yourself as separate. We heard it, not so much as as people or entities that go through this cycle over and over again, but what we heard was, it's going to help you feel better as an individual. Yeah. So the, I think we heard these people wrong, and I don't think we quite realized, I don't think they quite realized, and I don't think we quite realized how, how differently we were hearing than what they were speaking. When I read Barshi now, I say to myself, yes, in a deep and metaphysical way, there there is a sense of permanent joy. I get it. But it's not the individual personality joy that I was sort of assuming it was. So I think in that sense, we misheard them. I think also that the gurus came to the West and all of a sudden they started hitting, you know, this enormous popularity. And I think that encouraged them to speak in a way that was... Kind of idealizing of enlightenment and idealizing of the spiritual path, in part to get more adherence, and in, in part because you know it's you know people are saying oh this is so wonderful you want to you know you want to keep drawing people in, and so that I think to some extent there was an idealization going on. To some extent they didn't need to bother with making sure that we we understood what this was and wasn't. Then there's another phrase that the Buddhists use, and I've heard the Hindus use as well the Buddhists have a phrase called upaya. Upaya means expedient means. Mm-hmm. And the, the thought is, if you get somebody onto the path,
2: however you do it, they're going to be better off. Skillful means, yes. Than if they're, yeah,
1: than, than cell if cell they're not on the path. So this notion of expedient means was encouraging them to get us excited about what was happening in the path. And so I think all of those reasons led us have a somewhat idealized view of what the spiritual path was going to do, and a somewhat idealized of, what, of um, understanding of what enlightenment was about. And I think, I think that part of my work in my life has been to unlearn the fantasy, to let go of the attachment and the fantasy that I had about what the spiritual path was going to do. And, I, and I've heard this from a lot of people, that a lot of people have said to me, especially since the book has come out. A lot of people have said to me, "Oh, thank you so much. I know i've had str- I've struggled with this same problem of of having to unlearn the fantasy that I had about what this stuff was going to do. so I think in that sense it wasn't just me i I'm sure of that, but I think in that sense there was a kind of cultural misunderstanding that was happening between people like marshshimaogi and 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 us in the West that that heard him and and so wanted to believe there was a, a kind of simple salvation for us as individuals. I think there was a deep misunderstanding.
0: And that's where I think and feel that your book is very, very useful because um, it um, it deconstructs a certain grandiosity.
1: Oh, beautiful. Well, put. yes, that's exactly what I was. And it's a grandiosity we carried inside of ourselves and it's a grandiosity we were handed
2: that's right handed by the gurus that's right
1: Yeah, yeah beautiful that's well put yeah
0: yeah thank you so um i highly highly recommend your book enlightenment ain't what it's cracked up to be
1: so let's make sure we get the website in and also the website for the soul jazz program may i do that
0: yes of course
1: um the book uh website is called enlightenment8.com and the eight does not have an apostrophe. You can't put an apostrophe in a URL. So enlightenment 8com dot com is the is the website for the book and you can buy it there. That goes through Amazon by the way. Uh or the website for the Soul Jazz program, if you want to hear a little more about that, is go deeper together dot com. Go deeper together dot com all one word. So both of those sites are just you know, terrific. The, the um, Soul Jazz site is, uh, we're still under construction, but if you go there, you can sign up and get a newsletter from us. So thank you for giving me that chance.
0: Sure. I have one more question for you, which is. And then uh, I have one for you. Oh, good. I would love it if you spoke to me about your relationship to nature, the, uh, the alchemy of the earth.
1: well let me say this there is something that that happened to me about 20 years after the first breakthrough and um, I I don't it's very difficult to describe but there's a sense that came over me and that I still carry of um, being not distant from the world not distant from nature. Mm-hmm. It's a different sense than I used to have. I used to be, you know, I'd look over at a tree or a bird, and um, um, there'd be a sense of kind of resistance to everything I saw. And it was not something I was aware of until it, until it dropped away. So that the sense is that the tree was some distance away from me. And then what happened was that there was a, that, that fell away. And the the experience I began to have and continue to have to this day is of there is no felt distance. I mean, I'm looking over at a tree right now. I live near a forest, and I'm I'm looking over at a tree, and it's probably thirty feet from here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know what a dist- I know what distance is, but there's no felt distance in the same way that it used to be. So now nature uh, feels like there's a kind of um, there's a kind of unity or togetherness that I can sense between what I am and what that tree is, or what nature is. And there's and, and it and it feels like the world has become a more a softer place, a more welcoming place for me. And I like it a lot. I, I much prefer it. Again, it's not one of these things that's loud. It's like you know, it's not. It doesn't bang you over the head, but it's very real and it's very much um, noticeable in that quiet way that the spiritual transformations are noticeable. What I do not experience is I've never... I mean, you often hear about the Native Americans saying they look up at an eagle and they know they're supposed to turn left. That's
2: mm-hmm. that's not
1: part of my life. That's not part of my experience, in part because it's just not part of my background. I, to some extent, envy people that have that that level of a kind of guidance they can take from what's around them. My sense is that all of nature is rather welcoming. And so that there is, the sense that I have is, if there's an alchemy here, it's an alchemy of life. Mm -hmm. That life is welcoming in a way that I think is, I didn't used to experience, and that I would say is welcoming in a way that is deeply reassuring. And I think we were talking before about the effect on society. I think, yes. I think if we all felt this or we all felt something even slightly like this, I think it would be very hard not to be more respectful of what we're doing to the environment and what, what what's happening in our world around us. There is a sweetness in the world that I think that those of us that pay attention know. And and it it, it is heartbreaking to see that sense of nature be damaged and and to be um to have harm done to it so yeah i would say that 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 there is a a sense of continuity that that uh, helps me helps one sense that the world is a place to be cared for in a in a very positive way so thank you that's uh, it is um
2: Exactly. it's very precious to be in this world
1: with, with color I mean, if you step back and you think of the very notion of green and the very experience of brown and the experience of cold and warm mm-hmm. it's very precious to be a human being and to know this and to have this, these sorts of experiences and nature is a huge gift to us and is a huge gift to me and it would be an enormous loss to to just ignore that and to not pay attention.
0: Yeah, perhaps uh, it's what you're saying and expressing the energy that you, the music that you are putting to these words about nature, perhaps that's one of the answers to um, shedding the toxic shame that was imposed upon us.
1: Perhaps. Perhaps.
0: So, Robert, I want to uh, ask. One question for you. Yes, tell me.
1: Can we do this again? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's adorable.
1: <laughs> so are you.
0: That's really. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's so fun to um, uh, talk with as little pretense as possible.
1: You know, this is it, it, this is to some extent what I, I'd like to invite our listeners into and in fact there's a kind of invitation i have about the book yes um i think what our society i think one of the things our society is desperate for is good hearty honest conversation and by honest conversation i mean conversation where people are willing to really explore what is true and what they don't know what they do know but also what they don't know our society is much too preoccupied with what we do know where things get interesting that our society can use conversations and use contact with each other in which we are telling each other what the real truth is. And when I started to write the book, I I, I intended to write a book that was true for me. And I think I've been moderately successful at that. And what I've been hearing recently, and it's been surprising and gratifying, is that people have read the book and, and, like yourself, like it. And then they've given it to a good friend. And the book kind of opens up a space. A book, because the book is so vulnerable and so honest,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think people are starting to sense it, it might be okay to do that. So people have been giving this book to their friends or their relatives. Somebody said they gave it to their father, which was like stunning to me. Yes. And, and, then they've had, and then they say, just read the book and let's talk. And not talk about, well, what do you think the author meant by, but rather just talk about your own life. And the book kind of makes it safe to do that, so I would like to expe- extend that invitation to folks to use the book as a kind of jumping-off point for a conversation with their friend or with their family member or with with anybody, you know, with their with anybody that they want to be honest with. But my only request is that they do that to send me an email and <laughs> <Okay. laughs> tell me how it goes. Yes. I want to hear these stories, I think it's amazing.
2: So yes, yes. In
1: that yes. sense, I want to invite people to use the book as a kind of jumping-off point.
0: Well, uh, you said something that um, that triggered something in me. Uh, I don't like to use the word enlightenment because uh, I have no idea what that is. But your book and our conversations make it safe for me to use that word.
2: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Yep. Yeah, I think might mean something rather specific and we've all thought it meant you're a perfect person and that's not what it's about it's about a particular shift that goes on and a a discovery of consciousness and once you sort of simplify that then yeah it's okay to talk about that that's just another experience that people have or or a shift that goes on i think we should talk about it and we should be pretty clear about what we mean by it and i think the book makes it clear and then you know we shouldn't be afraid of talking about experiences where where it gets scary is if you start saying, "I am a perfect being." It's like, no, that's bullshit. Oh. You know, but but you can say in perfectly good conscience, "Yeah, I've had this experience, and it's been good in this way, and kind of funny in that way, and bad in that way." So it's like, I, I yes, I want to make it safe for people to use that word right. and use it rather accurately. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. glad you do.
2: That's
0: good. Yeah. Now, Robert, uh, we're going to do this again
2: good.
0: for sure. And I want to ask you what you would like to say in closing.
1: Well, actually, in closing, I'd like to read a little passage from the book, if I might. Good. Because this catches what I think we're actually after. So if you, can, if you can give me a minute or so.
0: Absolutely. Rather than happiness. This is from
2: page 203 of Enlightenment, Eight, What is it's cracked up to me. Rather than happiness, or what
1: the Hindus call an Ananda. In the end, what we get is to become ever more real. Uh, I think this is what we're after. Not so much happiness, not so much a good feeling, but rather to become ever more real. We get to stand bent under the burdens of fewer and fewer of our own lives. With our feet planted ever more deeply into the soil of what is true, we get to stand ever more vertical, and we get to discover with and to invite others who wish to do the same. What the spiritual path offers is not unmingled happiness, and it is not the conventional, nor is it friendship or ease, though these may come. What we get instead is to be increasingly open to the joy and the melancholy that is the deeply lived life. In the end, what we get is to be increasingly alive the mystery coursing up our spines we get to be more awake more deeply honest freer and we get to stand up straighter and straighter in that freedom we get to be in all its ancient simplicity a human being
0: thank you so much dr robert foreman
1: well thank you and 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 let me say you know i am honored to be in a conversation with you i just think you do you 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 listen well you you take what i what the other person says seriously you enter into it with your own life and your own wisdom and it's a it's a it's an honor to talk to you i just really enjoy it and i very much look forward to the next time thank you
0: those of you who subscribe between December 5
2: to 15, 2011, we gratefully request that you please subscribe again. Thank you.
1: Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute.
0: If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making
2: a Tax deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.